0: If you'll take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we are down to our last two messages through the book. I originally thought I would wrap this up right as we concluded the year 2023, and then I decided to take two weeks to look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, so we'll finish the book next week. But this morning, our text is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through verse 9, which is on page, if you have one of the Red Bibles, 979, 979. And if you will, one more time, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, would you hear the reading of God's word? Bondservants. "...obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free." Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you now bless the preaching of your word, we pray. Both my speaking may be done in power and in accord with what You have already spoken. And in our hearing, may we be able to understand Your Word and delight in it and obey it and be shaped by it. We do not take these things for granted, but we ask for Your grace, both in the preaching and hearing of Your Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a pastor... One of the more intimidating moments that can occur in relation to preaching is when you have a text coming up that you're going to preach and someone approaches you and says something like, I am so excited that you're about to preach this text because it's my favorite text in all the Bible. I've been studying my whole life. And you think to yourself, I've been studying it since Monday. And so you want to say, prepare to be disappointed. Well, I guess I can find comfort in saying, no one came to me this week and said, the text you're preaching this week is my favorite in all of the Bible. I don't think Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is anyone's life verse. And it may be that if the past three sermons in the book of Ephesians left you feeling a bit, maybe asking the question, does this text really directly relate to me? Some of you no doubt have asked that, as we looked at uh, two different sermons on marriage and then one on parenting. There are uh, some of you who are not married and some of you who are not parents, although I do think there are fewer of us than we might think who would not find those texts directly applicable because uh, if we're not married, many of us would want to be married, and if we're not parents, we want to be parents, and a number of us are children still with living parents in our lives. But if at all you felt that way in the last three sermons, does this text really directly relate to me? No doubt all of us could ask that question about the text we're looking at this morning. A text that's addressed to slaves, to bondservants. Now, I don't want to make light of the situation worldwide. As I understand it, slavery in some form, I've been told, more people are in slavery today than perhaps by number than perhaps at any other point in world history. So I don't mean to, to make light of the reality of slavery, and yet I'm confident that I can say this morning that in my preaching, I do not think I am addressing anyone to whom this text directly speaks in terms of bond servants or masters. That is to say, I don't think anyone here this morning is a slave, nor is an owner of slaves. And if that's the case, then what in the world do we do with a text like this? That is explicitly addressed to slaves, to bond servants in verses uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then to masters in verse 9. What do we do with this? Well, I think one way forward is to realize a key reality, a key truth that will help us understand, I think, how this text does relate to us. But in order to see that key truth, let me explain to you a little bit the nature of slavery under the Roman Empire in the ancient world in the first century when Paul would have written this. At the time Paul wrote this letter in the Roman Empire, one-third of the population in the Roman Empire would have been made up of slaves. Moreover, of that one-third, there were two main ways that people became slaves. The main way people became slaves was by being prisoners of war. So if, if, if Rome went to war with some foreign country and defeated that country, no doubt some would be killed, but those who weren't killed would be taken and brought back, and they would become slaves in the Roman Empire. And some, perhaps, would then be born as children of those who were prisoners of war. And so that's probably the main way that individuals became slaves in the Roman Empire. A second leading way that individuals could become slaves, and this was actually somewhat of a gracious measure, was through economic uh, difficulty. So you can imagine yourself, let's say you became uh, indebted to an individual, perhaps they loaned you money and you couldn't pay them back, and you got to the point that you owed them more than you could ever pay in your lifetime. Well, one out would of course be that you are prosecuted and thrown into prison, But another possibility is that you would be taken as a slave, an individual who could work and labor, and in that labor, basically pay off your debt. And so again, you could even see a graciousness. So so if those were the two main ways that that individuals became slaves in the Roman Empire, whether prisoners of war or in paying off their economic uh, situation. Now there was a third way, and a third way, it does seem to be a minority, but, but some individuals were made slaves much like individuals would be made slaves in our own country over the last uh, couple hundred years, where slave traders, individuals, would go out and take individuals, man-stealing, as uh, I think the, the Bible clearly condemns, and they would be brought in as those who were captured and made slaves. But by and large, it was through prisoners of war and those who were made slaves for economic reasons. One other difference Between slavery as addressed in the Roman Empire in the first century and slavery as experienced in our own country is that there was no racial component to it. In other words, you would find slaves in the Roman Empire, in Roman Empire, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Uh, Any country, any people that Rome conquered, those would become potentially slaves. So there's no racial factor to it. Two other realities that make it quite different than slavery, as we would have known in our country, are this. One, many times slaves would actually be paid. So so they would be slaves, they would be under masters, they would be made to do tasks, but they would also be given a sum of money along the way. And the idea would be that you're serving as perhaps a slave of another person, but by that person paying you in little increments over time, you would, after a good number of days, be able to purchase your own freedom. So some of the slaves were actually paid. Now... Others, and this is my final note on on this reality of slavery in the ancient world, many of the slaves would work in tasks, in fields, in areas, in careers that we would not necessarily anticipate. They would be doctors, or teachers, or accountants. Uh, Slaves would, would be found in all roles of society, and many times the masters would pay for their slaves to be educated, even to the point that the slave would be educated over and above his master. The master would no doubt see that as an investment, that the slave is an, is an asset to him, one who could do the books and teach his children and provide medical service and the like. Now, all of this is to say that it may be, as we look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, that slavery in the first century under the Roman Empire may have more in common with employment in our day than it did with slavery in our country 200 years ago. Now, I don't mean to suggest this text isn't dealing with slaves and masters. It is. What I'm saying is this. Have you ever dealt with a Venn diagram, you know, where you, you draw a circle and you put kind of facts about this reality and you take another circle and you do facts about this reality and the two where the circles overlap? Well, if you did that kind of thing with slavery in the first century, employment in our day and slavery in our country 200 years ago it may be that there's more overlap between the circles of slavery in the first century and our economic realities of employment in our own day than there is between slavery in the first century and slavery in our country 200 years ago and One of the benefits of us recognizing that, I think, is that when we read this text, although none of us are slaves and none of us are masters of slaves in our day and in this context, I think we can read these verses and recognize that these exhortations, these realities, these truths that Paul upholds have much direct application to our lives as those who are employed, who are employees, or who are employers. And again, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that the text is about slavery, but I'm simply saying this. Paul wrote this text because he recognized that when he wrote to the Ephesian believers and addressed their lives in their economy, the way that he was going to hit the most of them in their congregation was by dealing with the reality of slavery in the ancient world, because that's how much of their economy was founded. And I think if Paul had written this text, in our context, dealing with us and our economic reality, I think he would have written it to employees and employers. To those who are workers and those who have bosses or who are over individuals who are employed. And I'm convinced that very much what he says here would be very much what he would say to us in our context. In fact, I think Paul hints at that. At the very end of verse 8, as Paul's explaining how, how slaves should work, how they should conduct themselves, in verse 8 he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. In other words, Paul's recognizing so much of what I'm saying here applies to you whether you are a bondservant or you are free. And so the way that I'm going to tackle this text today, because I think this is a faithful way of dealing with this scripture, is I want to apply to us in our own reality, in our own day, in our own economic situation, in our own areas of employment, being employees or employers, I want to show us how we should conduct ourselves. I also want to note how crucial it is that we as believers think through this. Because I know We've just been talking about for the last three weeks, marriage and parenting, so many of us rightfully, I think, feel the importance, the crucial reality is, good grief, I want to be a good husband, I want to be a good father, I want to be a, a good wife, a good mother, a good child, so on and so forth, right? I don't know how many of us feel the same urgency when it comes to our areas of employment. In fact, let me ask this question. If I were to ask you, here we are on the verge of starting a new year. And if I were to say, for all of us, if I were to say this maybe before I started this sermon, let's take out a piece of paper and write down all the things that we wanna focus on in order to live Christ-honoring lives in the new year, my bet is that many of us would say something about having a Bible reading plan or conducting ourselves uh, with faithful prayer in our lives or the like. I don't know how many of us would write down on that piece of paper, I want to be a really good employee. In other words, when you and I think about living the Christian life, I don't think the thing that rises to our mind is how we spend our lives as workers in the workplace. And yet, think about your life. All of us have 24 hours in any given day. Now let's just assume We sleep for eight of them. I know some of you sleep less, some of you more. But let's assume, on average, we sleep eight hours a day. All right, so there's a third. That gives us 16 hours left. Most of us who work put in something like, I'm going to say, eight to 12 hours a day. But let's even take the lowest end of that, and let's say eight hours a day. Again, knowing some of you work 12 hours a day, even if you and I only work eight hours a day, that means half of our hours we live awake are spent in the workplace. So isn't it crucially important that you and I think through, if we're going to live lives that are honoring to Jesus Christ, whatever we do, as Brendan read earlier, whether in word or deed we do to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, isn't it crucial that you and I think through how we need to conduct ourselves as workers, as Christians in the workplace? Indeed it is, and I think that's why Paul wrote Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. So that's my very long introduction to convince you why this text is important. All right, now let's try to answer the question we may then be asking at this point. Hopefully we are asking, what then do I do? How then do I work? Or how then do I conduct myself as an employer? uh, If indeed I want to work and conduct myself in the workplace in a way that honors Christ. Let me give you four notes. The first three will be directed to us as workers, as employees, and the last one to us as employers. Number one, work as if you're working for Christ. Work as if you're working for Christ. This is explicitly what Paul says in verse five. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. In other words, the exhortation Paul gives to slaves under their masters are, I want you to obey your masters as if your master were Jesus Christ and you were obeying Him. Now. This is an area, again, where we might push and go, well, is this directly applicable? I wanna say, absolutely. In fact, I think we could argue this. If Paul is willing to tell slaves who have no choice over who their master is, you need to obey your earthly master as if you're obeying the Lord, how much more would he tell you and me who have taken jobs in the workforce? In other words, The job that you and I have, no one compelled us to do that, right? I mean, perhaps there's some weird scenario, but I can't think of one. Most of us chose the field we're in. Most of us chose to be doing what we're doing. Most of us chose to work with the individuals with whom we're working. And so if Paul can say individuals who have no choice, you need to obey your earthly master as if you're obeying the Lord, how much more would he say to you and me who could choose not to work there, but we voluntarily choose in exchange for a paycheck, to put ourselves under certain individuals for whom we have chosen to work? How much more would he tell us? You need to obey, you need to work as if you're working for Jesus Christ. In other words, we can think of it as an if-then statement. If you're going to work for someone, then work for that individual as if you're working for Jesus Christ himself. I think that is the force of that phrase at the end of verse 5. As you would Christ. If Jesus were your boss, how would you work? That's what Paul's telling us to do. John Stott, in his little commentary on Ephesians, writes, It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. That is precisely how you and I are to work. And if our response is, well, but my boss is tough, fair, but Paul originally wrote this to slaves who are under master's. So I don't think that you're going to find Paul going, oh, I didn't consider you having tough bosses. Of course he understands that. Of course he knows that there will be certain people who are difficult to work with. But I have trouble believing Paul would demand less of us than he would demand of slaves. And so that's where we start. If we want to be uh, believers who honor Jesus Christ in the workplace, our starting point is that we work as if we're working for Jesus Christ himself. If you're self-employed, Work for yourself as if you're working for Jesus Christ, right? Just work hard. But this is our starting point. Work as if we're working for Christ. Number two, work with a good heart and desire to do well. Work with a good heart and desire to do well. Note how much the heart and the will are mentioned in verses five through seven. Bondservants, Paul writes, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man." A couple of weeks ago, looking at children's responsibility to obey their earthly parents, we noted that a child could theoretically do what his or her parents command them, but if they're doing it pouting or complaining, kind of stomping around, Uh, this kind of imagery isn't real obedience. It's not the kind of obedience demanded in the text well as those who are adults i think what paul is showing us is that same kind of reality applies to our work in other words paul doesn't want us to be those who are working with begrudging hearts with complaining and murmuring spirits he said no no i want you to work with a sincere heart i want you to do the will of god from the heart to do all of this recognizing that you are working as unto the lord and not as unto man. In other words, believers, we are to work hard and to be driven from our hearts to work hard. I think it's fair to say, as believers, we should be the best employees on the planet. Now, Paul gives us a contrast in verse 6, I think, that helps us understand what he's getting at. In verse 6, he gives this contrast after telling us uh, work with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as we would Christ. He adds in verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering uh, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. But that note of not by way of eye service as people pleasers, I think helps us understand what Paul's getting at. Any of us knows what can happen in the workplace when everybody, you imagine, you know, an office space and cubicles and everyone's working and then the boss comes in. And if those were talking or or whatever they were doing or playing solitaire or something like this, that's probably dating myself. I'm sure there are better computer games now than solitaire. Minesweeper. I'm kidding. Um, But you can imagine everybody kind of, you know, messing around, wasting their time, and then the boss comes in and all of a sudden everybody's heads down. They're just working hard, Right? And then what the reason they're doing that is because they want when the boss comes in they want them to be seen by him as being hard workers. Their heads are down, they're focused, they're driven, they're not wasting their time talking. And indeed, the boss well could walk through the room and be quite pleased. This is such a good scene to see everybody working. And then the boss walks out of the room. And everybody goes back to their solitaire, Minesweeper, or whatever it is, or better computer games and uh, chatting it up. Right? In that case. Paul says what's going on is they're just working in terms of eye service. When they're under the boss's eyes, that's when they're working. They're, they're simply working as people pleasers those who would please those who are watching them, but when their eyes are gone, when the people are absent, they're right back to wasting time or, or not working hard. Paul says this is precisely what I do not want you to do. Don't work as eye service. Don't work as people pleasers. Work with a sincere heart, whether you are seen or not seen, whether the boss is in the room or not in the room. Let it be true of believers that we are rendering service in goodwill with sincere hearts, working again as unto the Lord and not as unto man. So if Paul's first place he starts is recognize that you're working as unto the Lord and work as if you're working for Christ. The second place he goes is work with a good heart and desire to do will a good to do well. Again, let me just say it seems to me, if we read our Bibles properly, that the Bible suggests that believers should be the best employees on the planet. In fact, one of the ways that we may go a long way in testifying to the glory and greatness of our Lord is by working well under unbelieving men and women who may well raise the question to us at some point, why? Why do you work so hard? Why do you uh, give yourself to this task? And our answer can then be to point them back to this text and the fact that we think our Lord deserves much because he has given much to us. So work as unto the Lord, work with a good heart and desire to do well. Number three, work knowing that the Lord will reward you. Work knowing that the Lord will reward you. Now I know one of the great obstacles to us in our hearts, obeying this text, is that those around us in the workplace may not well may well not be on the same page as us. You perhaps have been in this very environment where those around you are wasting time. I remember when I started college, when I came to Union in the mid-90s, a Union cost much less than, um, I, I'll say it out loud as painful as it is to hear, if you came to Union, when I came to Union in the mid-90s, you had no scholarships, you took a full load, you lived on campus, the whole year would cost you $9,600. Now it's over 50000 But come to Union. Um, that's my advertisement, right? Um, nonetheless, right before I came to Union, my dad lost his job. So I knew that if I was going to come, $9,600 at that time was an enormous amount of money for me, for my family, I knew that I would largely be having to provide for my own living, my own schooling, my own education. And so what I would do in the summers is I would go work. And I remember after my freshman year going back home and looking for a job, and I got hired by a company in Benton, Kentucky, just a little bit off the interstate from where we lived. Uh, and it was doing data entry, uh, putting, putting numbers, putting... Um, numbers that would represent certain products that they were selling or or software or something like this, putting them into a spreadsheet. And I do a lot of things poorly in life, but putting information, putting data in a spreadsheet is like what I was made for. I I, I love it. I feel like we should have a national holiday on the day that the spreadsheet was created. And so I came to work, realizing this would be my task, and uh, I came into the office, and there was a girl in the cubicle next to me, who had done this same job the year prior, the summer prior, and so she was making a little more money than me, that's fine, understandable, of course, she had more work experience in the field. But we were both given the same task. And so I remember I started working and I just put my head down and I got to work and I'm entering this data and I'm filling out my spreadsheet and, and, and going at it, and I would notice about her and many others in our area that they, they weren't quite working in the same way that I was. They weren't putting their head down and getting at it, they were spending a lot of time at the coffee pot, not only getting coffee, but chatting it up, talking over the cubicles, discussing what's going on in the world, and every once in a while I'd look up and think, I think they're supposed to be doing what I'm doing, and so we would just go at it, go at it, go at it, and sure enough, my task had been to take the entire summer to do my data entry, but after two or three weeks, I was done. Now again, that may say something to my oddness and loving spreadsheets and all that, but I was done after a few weeks. I went into my boss's office and I said to him, I'm done. And he goes, well good. And I said, no, no, I'm I'm not done for the day, I'm done. Like the work that you gave me to do for the summer, I've, I've concluded it, I'm just ready for whatever's next. And he goes, "Well, I'm not sure I have what's next. So why don't you go on home today and then come back tomorrow and I'll have thought of something that you can do. So I went home, which, you know, it can feel nice to be sent home early until you know you're an hourly worker. <laughs> and I left early, and I came back the next day, and he said to me, Lee, there are a few things I can have you do that will keep you busy till lunch today, but the reality is, this was my job I had for you to do all summer. I have nothing else for you to do. I'm going to have to let you go. And I wanted to say, let her go. You know, the only reason you thought you even needed to hire me is because she did such a poor job last summer, you thought I need two people to do this summer. You don't. You just need one person to work hard. And I thought, good grief. Not only, I've kept my head down. I've worked hard. I've not spent time at the coffee maker having discussion. I didn't even like coffee at that point in my life. I wasn't discussing these other things. I, I, I've been working well, and you know what It benefited me? I got paid less money than those wasting time, and then I got let go. Just a few weeks into my job, a job that I really desperately needed. What do you say to that individual in that setting? Now, that may be an extreme example, but I think we all know if we obey this sex tomorrow, you're going to be dealing with the same thing. You're going to be looking across the cubicle and thinking, that person's wasting time, and that person's wasting time, and perhaps they're getting better pay, they're getting pay raises, they may even get promoted they may know very well how to put their head down and work hard when the boss walks into the room. And he doesn't know how to differentiate that. So what do you say to yourself at that moment? What do you do to press on and keep going when that's the work environment in which you're working? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verses 8 and 9, or verse 8, doesn't he? We'll start back in verse 7. He says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. In other words, if you're in that situation where you think, my boss isn't even recognizing the difference between me and anyone else in this office, though I'm working extremely hard. One of the things that you can tell yourself is, he may not see, she may not see, but the Lord sees, and the Lord knows. And in fact, that's an understatement, isn't it? Paul doesn't want us to know simply that the Lord sees and that the Lord knows. But he wants us to know the Lord's going to do something about it. No, I don't mean he's going to make sure the other person gets fired or the like. Paul says very positively, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. I mean, imagine that you're in the kind of work environment like I discussed. And with about a month to go in the summer, somebody called you into their office and said, you know what, I'm the owner of the company. And, and, and nobody knows this, but I have secret cameras up in the office space, and I've been watching, and I've seen what you've done all summer. And I want you to know, keep this up, and at the end of the summer, you're going to get a bonus, a one-time bonus that is more than anybody in the office even makes. Now go back to your job. Could you imagine how hard you would work the rest of the summer, how motivated you'd be, how pleased you'd be? Paul says." I've got something better. It's not the owner of the company that's looking and watching, and they'll give you a bonus at the end of the summer. He's saying it's the Lord himself, the one who owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills, they're his. He sees, he knows, and he will reward you. You will receive from his hand blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, doesn't that free you? From the temptation to go, well, I want to be as lazy as the guy next to me who seems to keep getting rewarded. Or man, this is really hard because my boss is, is just a difficult man, a difficult woman. Brothers and sisters, forget all that. You're working as unto the Lord and he sees you. He knows and he will pay us back. Do you see how Paul has given us such motivation here? And again, He makes clear this isn't some kind of structural reality for those who are slaves. He says at the end of verse 8, whether you're a bondservant or free, however you work, as unto the Lord, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free man, it doesn't matter. God sees it. He knows it and will receive back from his hand. So that's our answer to the question. If we think about being employees in this world, the, the, the eight hours to 12 hours a day that we spend working, the third of our waking hours working, how do we do that as unto the Lord? Work as unto the Lord. Work with a good heart and a good will, sincere devotion to do what is good and right and work, knowing that the Lord sees and He'll reward you. What about on the other end of things? What if we have individuals under us or we're the employer or we're the boss? What do we then do Well, this will be our fourth point. Number four treat employees the same way and don't threaten them. Treat employees the same way and don't threaten them. In verse nine, Paul turns his attention to masters. He writes in the very first half of verse nine Masters do the same to them. Now, that's a brief phrase. But basically, it takes everything that we've said so far and lays it as responsibility on those who are employing others as well, those who serve as bosses, those who serve as authorities in the workplace. Paul says, I want you, masters who may have been listening in at everything I've said to the slaves, I want you to hear what I've said and do the same to them. Now, now I'll acknowledge, I don't think everything can be perfectly reciprocated. I mean, he starts out saying in verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. I don't know that it can be perfectly reciprocated and masters obey your slaves, or or employers obey those whom you employ. If we were to do that, then there may be, I I, I don't know how many employees, especially our employees are looking out for uh, the success of the business itself, and so I don't think that that can be applied perfectly reciprocal, but much of what we've seen does. What Paul is saying when he says masters do the same to them is he's saying just as I've told them to work in such a way as if they're working for Christ and honoring Christ, we'll flip that around. As those who are employing individuals or those who are exercising, authorities over an individual, exercising authority over individuals, exercise that authority in such a way that you're attempting to honor Christ, in such a way that Christ would be pleased with how you're treating Him if He were under you and you were his authority, or his employer. Just as they are to deal with you sincerely and truthfully, with with sincere hearts and and hard work working as unto the Lord, so an employer should deal with his employees and authority, those under him or her. Deal with them truthfully sincerely. Let them know that your yes is yes and your no is no, that you are who you say that you are. I think we can even say, in light of verse 8, It is good and right and wise for any employer or authority to recognize the hard work of those under him and reward them for their work. Let them take part in the blessings. If you have the authority to do something like like bonuses when the year has gone well, then dish those out. Because it's only when those under you are working hard that you can achieve these kinds of areas. This is what Paul says. As masters, do the same to them, treat them well in such a way that Christ would be pleased. But then he does give them a negative exhortation. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, this is an area perhaps where we could say, well, I don't know that this applies really one-to-one in our situation, because it is fair that although there's a lot of overlap between the economic system of slavery in the first century Rome and our own economic situation, such that we've made these points, it is also true that you would have masters who would threaten to physically harm the slave. Uh, Do X, or you're going to get whipped or beaten or the like. Now, I don't think, actually, in first century Rome, this was as common and as severe as we often saw in our own country a couple hundred years ago. And one reason for that is because uh, these slaves would have been seen as assets. Why would you want to cripple or maim an individual who was supposed to be productive? And again, sometimes assets that you were investing in, educating them so that maybe they might be doctors or educators or the like. But nonetheless, Paul does say to them, don't threaten. Servants. But I think even here, there's an area where we can see a parallel. And that is this. As those who can exercise authority in the workplace, as those who are bosses or employers, we all know whether we have been this or we have seen this, we all know that there are certain individuals who exercise authority in certain arenas of life, like the workplace, who can always be overbearing and threatening. Some of us who have played sports have even seen this with coaches, right? You can coach in in multiple ways, but one of them is just to always be making threats. And this is the kind of way that some of us have seen employers work. The guy that's always yelling, the guy that's always threatening, uh, the guy who's only using negative reinforcement for you. And Paul simply says, listen, as believers, especially dealing with other believers, let's not be that way. Don't motivate them by threatening them. And the reason he gives for that exhortation, stop your threatening, is he reminds all of us that we have a master in heaven who shows no partiality. In other words, when the day of judgment comes and we stand before the throne of Christ, he's not going to have this level up here that says, well, this person was, was an employer and this person was only an employee. This person has great wealth and this person had nothing. This person had great education and this person had very little. No, when we stand before Christ, he says he's not going to show any partiality. We all just stand before him as those who are being judged. And so Paul says, don't don't deal with other men as if you think of yourself as being so much higher than them. Because you need to recognize that when we stand before God, he'll show no partiality. Oh yeah, and he's all of our masters. We are all his bondservants. Now what's interesting is how that serves in verse nine. In other words, if we were just outlining this text and we were outlining verse nine, masters do the same to them, exhortation, and stop your threatening, exhortation, negatively put. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him, how would you label that phrase? What function does it serve in verse 9? Interestingly, we might read it and say, ironically, it's a threat, isn't it? Stop threatening because, we could say, threat, you have a master who's going to judge you impartially. Now, that's fair. It could work that way, and indeed, if our hearts are bent toward threatening... We need to see it as a strong warning to us. But it doesn't have to be a threat, does it? It could be holding out blessing and reward. Stop your threatening. Treat them well because you have a master who's going to judge you as well. And oh, that could be a day of great blessing, couldn't it? You see, it seems that the idea is this recognize you have a master over you and one day you'll give an account to him and therefore treat those under you in such a way that when that day comes, your master will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done in how you've treated them. Well done in how you have painted a picture of the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And perhaps that should be the reality that's on all of our hearts whether we are employees or employers or both perhaps as believers we should take all of these things that we've said and say yes and amen i'm striving after them and maybe have this reality at the forefront of our minds and let me work in such a way that if my employee or my employer were not a believer we could win him toward christ by how i work by how I treat them because brothers and sisters in Christ our master the one who is over us said to us I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many the one who could have just cast us all into hell deservedly so laid down His life for us to the point of death, bearing the penalty and punishment our sins deserved, and then was raised on the third day so that you and I, if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Him, can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what He did for us. In our workplace, whether it is in our work or in our treating of others, let us work in such a way that we are constantly attracting men and women who either are above us or who are under us in the workplace. Let us constantly be wooing them to the one who will judge us and the one who died for us. And so it is at all times that we can keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds. And that's one reason why we conclude the service as we do every week by coming to the table. Because everything we say and everything we think and everything we do as individual believers all revolves around keeping at the forefront of our minds, remembering what Christ has done. He lived, He died, and He was raised for us. So this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing magical that you have to do to have forgiveness of sins or eternal life. You don't have to walk the aisle at a certain time or pray a certain prayer. Scripture says you merely need to repent, turn from your sins, and place your faith. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died for us and was raised for us. You can do that right now in your seats. Place your faith in Him. If you would like to talk to somebody more about that, you could talk to your neighbor in your seat, or you could talk to one of the pastors. I'll be here, other pastors will be in the foyer as the service are done. We would love to talk to you. And if indeed you do place your faith in Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, we're gonna encourage you to make that public. And the way the Bible tells us to make that public is by being baptized, lowered into water and brought up again, showing that you've by faith been united with the one who lived and died and was buried and then rose from the grave. And so if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ and talk to one of us so that you might profess your faith in baptism. If you are a believer this morning, you've professed your faith in baptism, you're a member in good standing with a gospel preaching church, then we want to invite you to the table this morning. The way we're going to come is we're going to take a moment of silence to allow the musicians to get in place, pastors to get in place. Are we a pastor here, a pastor here, a pastor over in the area to my left? And then after that moment of silence, I'll I'll close that time in prayer and then we'll come forward, just row by row, the second following the first and third after that and so on and so forth. You'll find in the tray a stack of two cups together, the top one with juice, the bottom with bread. If you'll take one stack of two cups, return to your seat, and then once we've all received this, we'll eat together and we'll drink together, giving thanks and remembering Christ's death and resurrection as our hope and the reason why we do all that we do. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table.